I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and I'm joined in the studio by The Telegraph's rugby news correspondent, Gavin Mears. Hello, Gavin. Hi, Brian. Back to... Normality, yes, shall we say, after a very, very interesting Six Nations. And one of our colleagues has put together a very interesting table about who is and isn't playing. Charlie Morgan has listed all the starting players of the weekend just gone um, that started the Six Nations. And if you look through this list, there is a stark contrast between those playing and those not. For example, all of England's players by those who are injured and Mako Vinopolo, who was on the bench, started at the weekend. In contrast, in Ireland, one injury, uh, but only two starts out of the remaining 15. In Wales, it's about half and half. Scotland, about a third. And in Italy, there are three players who started at the weekend. Now, there are tactical reasons for that because... Some of the Irish players will be resting for the forthcoming European games, which we'll yeah. also discuss. However, the point is, had they been in a situation where the Pro 14 had promotion and relegation and they were either top or bottom, then this option probably wouldn't have been open to them. Absolutely. And, and, and another point, Brian, on that is the, the clubs being privately owned, there is an expectation of the club owner who pays the salaries that yep. you know he gets he gets his employees, he wants to sell tickets at grounds in the centrally contract environment, particularly in Ireland, where you have a situation where the players the the, the provinces may want the players at this point, but um, effectively they are if you own the players so they can decide when and where they play, and everybody will be rested. As you say, I think there was only two players. Uh, from the Ireland Ireland side uh, playing for Ulster who aren't involved in the, in the European knockout stages. A massive advantage when you think of all the players have gone through the last six, seven weeks in the Six Nations to be able to have two weeks clear to, to, to sort of mentally and physically get yourself right for Champions Cup. It, you know, it, is, it can, only, can only give those players an advantage. I mean, let's get this right. Uh, I'm not complaining about, you know, one country against another, suffice to say, where central contracts are available, they work. And it's the best system. 
unfortunately, because of the way in which professionalism came around in England, it's not available and probably never will be. Question, Brian, for yourself. When you were playing for yep. Quinns for England, would you have, would you have relished the, the, the fact that you were being sort of, uh, your, your game minutes, everything was being monitored from above and you might get to say, say, Brian, rest this weekend, you, we need you to peak in two weeks, or would you just want to have played, no, I mean, played we, and played and played? We played straight away afterwards, but the difference was some of our games, frankly, were not that difficult, relatively. Yeah. yeah. You know, every time these players step onto the field in Pro 14, Top 14 and Premiership, they're battles, real yeah. battles. Yeah. Whereas some of our normal fixtures were okay. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. you were still having to play yeah. and you were still risk injury, but the intensity simply was not comparable in any way at all. When you look at the weekend, great game at Leicester, was battled it out. Leicester, quite, I can't quite see them carrying the lot off, but again, their ability to time runs and be in and around playoffs is rearing its head again, isn't it? It really is. And, and you know, from a Premier League, you know, the Premiership has been much maligned this last week about the, the contract situation. But when you look at it as a tournament, it's just getting this. The next this this business end of the season is going to be fantastic. Some brilliant results, some brilliant crowds. We looked at Newcastle, thirty thousand up at St James's Park. Brilliant, brilliant turnout for for the Saracens game as well. Mm. And you look at that point where we've got six points between fourth and seventh place. We know brilliant run in both to see who can finish top of the pile, but also to get that fourth place. So no resting at all. And let's look at the bottom end with London Irish. They're almost certainly going to go down barring a miracle. And they've got changes there with uh, Declan Kidney coming in and Les Kiss. Nick Kennedy has left as director of rugby. I understand that um, the club wanted to keep Nick. I, I, I thought, I mean, I, I I was sort of broke this story a couple of weeks ago with the fact that Kidney was coming and Les Kiss. But interestingly, at that point, um, while Brendan Venter left the club with immediate, club with immediate effect, Nick Kennedy didn't. And I think you're you're absolutely right, Brian, because he's he's been a brilliant brilliant young coach, young young director of rugby. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's the type of person that a club you know he's got the right way with himself. He's got a good business mind as well. So I think he's an asset to a club. I think the problem for Nick when you look at the, who's been bought in and where is where does he fit in that? Yep. It would have been difficult to see how, um, when you have a, a, a Grand Slam winning coach, international coach coming in uh, 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 with a guy who's worked very closely, who's just been a director of rugby at Ulster, that that didn't seem to me from the outside to leave much room for how could earth he could have worked as a director of rugby. And it's sad, sad that Nick has to leave. It's sad for London Irish. He's been a great servant for them. Um, I think the one positive thing, if you're looking at London Irish's fortunes, if they're going down this year, the fact that the club have looked to invest heavily in coaching is, to me, at least a sign that they're looking longer term about trying to get straight back up. And how they do that will be the challenge. But at least the the club owners are saying, right, we want to spend money to get the coaching right. Well, they are doing that, but that brings on to another point which I covered in my uh, column this week, the, the issue of promotion and relegation. Now, you always get from the proponents of promotion and relegation the very simple statement, the game must be seamless from top to bottom, as if that is an immutable fact, cannot be changed, 
and is all absolutely desirable and speaks for itself. Well, it doesn't, actually. Yeah. And bearing in mind the realities now of professional rugby and the bigger and bigger gap between that and amateur rugby, they're going to have to look at this at some point because millions and millions of pounds continue to be wasted by this one-off battle every year, up and down, the rush to get back or the scramble not to go down, which means that any recruitment during a season is short-term with established players, quite often from abroad, with clubs not feeling able to nurture young talent and give them a chance. And I make the case again, if you had a moratorium, I don't know how long it would be, two, three or whatever years, so that clubs could plan their seasons, they could plan their investment and they could nurture younger players from the academy and so on. London Irish supplied four of the under-20 EPS um, yeah, for 17-18. Bath, none. And yeah. Bath are a big spending club. Yeah. You know, and these are England qualified players. So, and look how many London Irish players are playing for other clubs. A lot, yeah, a lot yeah. of ad- yeah. academy players yeah. playing all over the league. And I just think, given the reality is that only one more club maybe could possibly be in the position to make professional rugby a reality, then what is the point in pretending that this? situation is something other than it is I suppose the only thing Brian you know, those are valid points just the, the, the amount of clubs in England, the amount of players and the amount of money financially I guess the risk is you cut off the, the potential for somebody who has got money and, and is brilliant manager brings in brilliant coaches, we've seen Exeter come up against all the odds and be a real success now, a top team in England you think but, if you, but if you had a moratorium of just three years, then that wouldn't be barred altogether. I'm not saying bar it altogether. I'm just saying let's end the annual yo-yoing. I, yes, I suppose the only problem is it's almost are you half pregnant. You know, can you be half pregnant? If you close it for three years, does the gap become too big for anyone to, to hope to sort of force their way in? Well, it becomes less big. Because at least the clubs who are trying to come up have three years to plan their business strategies, to plan their player recruitment, instead of what they have now, which is a one-off fight every year. So it's now, now, now. Which means if you have a raft of good players, you can't afford to play them because you need them to be seasoned uh, club players. And as I say, quite often they are players from abroad and you're having to pay them more as well. So all round, yeah. it costs you more. Yeah. The other problem is the championship club coming up doesn't have doesn't operate in the same playing field. They don't get the same share of the money from the Premiership, and that's something that even if you don't do away with ring, or do away with promotion relegation, the clubs at the, uh, in the top table have to be able to say it's a fair a fair division of of revenues to give the club that comes up you know we go back to your passion of NFL you give the club that comes up the best opportunity to to succeed at the minute the premiership gives them the worst opportunity no I understand that but how is that any different from the situation now if you have a three-year moratorium when you're talking about 
giving the opportunities to the notional clubs that might at some point come along with investors, they'll face the same situation as they do now, but they won't have um, the time lag period I'm suggesting to try and build their business and their business model and recruitment model and play model um, over a period of time. They've got to do that all in one year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also with the playoffs, with, this, with the way the whole thing is set up at the minute, the championship cup coming up has to recruit in early June. Exactly. Impossible. The play, best players are done. Deals Absolutely. are done. So if there's going to be any sense. But Brian, I would just, I, I hear everything you say. The one thing of if people look to the Pro 14 and I argue are, and are critical of it, it's the fact that there is no, there is no edge of relegation. And, mm-hmm. and that is something that, you know, in some ways, if the Premiership can get the right balance of making it easier for a club to come up and not go straight down again, you keep the best bits of a, of a competitive league at both ends. Having said that, as we know, the Pro 14 and the central contact situation has wider benefits for, for internationals. Anyway, this debate will run and run, <laughs> I am quite sure. Time now to speak to someone at the sharp end. Nick Evans, former All Black, former Harlequins number 10, now the Quinns attack coach. Hello, Nick. Hello, guys. How are you going? Hi, oh, Nick. Mate. Very quickly, Nick. Six Nations. Decent quality from uh, your seasoned eye or the case of just one side being a lot better than everyone else? No, I think it was uh, I think it was good. I really enjoyed it. I think um, with, you know, Ireland being their pragmatic best, you know, very, very comfortable in what they are. Um, I think they've got the two best halfbacks uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and I think that counts when it comes to the crunch things, you know, got them over the line in a, in a couple of those games. Um, and I just... You know, from an English point of view, I think um, it's not that it's been found out. I just think that um, the, the game plan B and C don't seem to be there or they don't seem to be able to adapt to it quick enough if teams stop plan A, um, that which is obviously the power game. Um, you stop England's power game. What have they got after that? Um, no, I thought it was a fascinating Six Nations and um, oh, it'll be interesting to see um, over the next kind of, you know, 12 to 15 months um, how this evolves. And, and Nick, you mentioned there about the the Ireland halfbacks. I'm just interested to hear how you felt um, England's changes at ten. You mentioned England not having the power runners in this championship, and 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 that maybe if reflected on George Ford's ability to play the game. Just did you you know just your thoughts on how Eddie Jones managed the the, the fly half position, and, and was he right to make the change when he did? I was frustrated. I don't know. I don't know why he changed the, the Ford Farrell combination. For me, I, I, I quite liked it. Um, one, I thought, you know, their ability to, to manage that game against Wales in, in the wet. You know, I'm, I'm a uh, I'm a, of the thought process that uh, when England are at their best, they're the best, best wet weather team in the world um, for their tactical awareness um, and their defensive, and then yeah, their set piece to that uh, with their power game. I I, I thought in, in that game they uh, they. You know they, they boss that area. Um, and the problem when you take Ford off for me is I think they become even more predictable. Um, I think Ford, uh, you know, Ford Farrell and Joseph is a lot different beast to say Ford To and Joseph uh, because of, uh, sorry uh, Farrell To and Joseph because the, they haven't got the ability to get the ball uh, in the wider channels. Um, you know Joseph is you know I've, you know 
be honest, I thought he, he had a poor Six Nations, but it's not helped um, when he hasn't got the ability to, you know, like Conrad Smith do, is to organise and get the ball into those wider channels. Um, it, the ball doesn't get there, and I don't think he gets there with uh, with Ford off the field. Um, so for me, I, I would have him there. Um, and then you can have a look at your 12-13 after that. Um, but no, I, I, I thought... I thought actually um, tactically they were better with Ford and Farrell, um, but uh, the game plan seems to suffer. I feel anyway. And so maybe to re, you think it's right to to bring that partnership back for the South Africa tour? Um, yeah, well, I guess it's it's, it's, it's going to be up to Eddie on whether he wants to see new players when he wants to give people a rest. Uh, you know, it's obviously a, a, a big talking point at the moment in terms of. People uh, supposedly being tired. Um, you know, obviously they've played a, a, a lot of games, and, and a few of the Irish boys are off in Dubai at the moment, which um, <laughs> which a lot of people are, are loving. Um, you know, been in the papers and everything like that. But look, I think I, I, for me, I would I, I would play that that combination as much as possible. Um, I think um, you know the nine the nine's uh, an issue as well. Um, I don't think their game plan allows Danny to to flourish in the way that he. It has the biggest impact on the game in terms of setting the tempo um, and, and being a really, really attacking threat. He's, he's not a kicking half, but he has got a good kick, but he's, he's not a Wigglesworth. So I think, you know, when he picks his nine, it gives a, a very big indication of the way that they, that, that they want to play. Um, I think, he, I know it's a, it's a bit of a shame, but he, he seems to be resigned to the fact that he's probably a better finisher at the moment uh, when the game breaks up a little bit. Um, so, look, I... In terms of that 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 ten twelve access for me, I, I would stick with Ford and Farrell. Um, I think Ford just gives that attacking, um, that more of an attacking option. Um, and you always think that he he, he can um, he can create that space on the outside, and, and I think he gets the best out of Joseph, which in terms will get the best out of those guys in the wider channels. Uh, Nick, you had a reverse at the London Stadium to Saracens. From your perspective, looking at the top of the table. Who do you think yep. are the standout teams, or is it too early to say? You know, in terms of the playoffs, and uh, because they, they're approaching very quickly. They are. They are. They're just around the corner. We've got about four, five, four games left. I think. Um, can Newcastle do it? Oh, look! I think they. I think they can. Look, they've just been the benefit of not having any disruptions in terms of players going away um, and and injuries. Uh, they've been to put the, put the same team out. You know, I remember when we were doing our analysis for. For Newcastle, looking back at their team sheets, um, we knew we could only look at envy and uh, the fact that they're just putting the same talent week in, week out. And it was the same with Exeter last year, and, and very much the same with uh, a bit like Exeter this year. Obviously, they have a few guys jumping in and out, but it's they've uh, been able to keep the same team. And, and this continuity uh, within a team at the top level uh, is, is such a key thing. Uh, combinations playing again and again and again, and successful teams that I've been involved in um, always had that similar. Um, kind of factor is that the, the team and the combinations play a lot of time together and they train a lot of the time together as well. So, look, I'd like to see Newcastle do it. I think that they've been a fantastic team. Um, you know, that, that game at St. James's Park, what a, what a great what a great occasion, both for shirt, um, you know, getting the, the public uh, up there really in behind it. Um, I thought they did that really, really well um, and put in a decent performance as well. So, um, look, they'll, they'll, they'll be pushing it. They're going to be hard to beat, especially at, at Kingston Park. I think Exeter are still probably leading the way. Um, again, you know, a bit like Ireland, just very, very comfortable in the way they play. Everyone knows their jobs. Um, everyone does their job. 
And, um, you know, they've got the character. I think I heard Rob Baxter say after their, uh, their win down at Bath, you know, that was all about the character of the team. You know, they got themselves stuck in a hole, uh, but they, uh, they've got the belief in the systems and the structures that they, uh, that they know they can get out of it. Uh, and their big players stepped up and, and, and got themselves out of it, which was, uh, which was great for their part. If you look at the five, six, seven, and eight, there's all theoretical possibilities for them still to be involved, but Leicester, Gloucester, Sale Sharks and Bath, probably only one of those is going to get into the top four. If you had to plump for one, which would it be? Um, I thought Leicester did well to, to, to beat Wasps. Um, you know, I think they've, they've slowly started to gain a little bit of momentum. Um, Gloucester are a bit like a super rugby team, I guess. You know, it's, it's kind of on their day if the, if the passes stick. Um, you know, they, they can be kind of world beaters. Um, so, you know, for me, I, th- I think it would be one of those two. Um, if I was going to put money on it, um, I'd probably say Leicester um, if you're going to push me. But um, I-, I just think that um, uh, at Welford Road, they're very, very hard to beat. Um, and they're starting to put some decent away performances as well. And Mick, we're, we're having a, a discussion here today about promotion relegation, whether it just stay or go. Just just briefly from your point of view as a as a player and now a coach, you, I just... Do you think it's right that it's the time now to sort of pull up the drawbridge? As a coach, I'm probably not a big fan of that. <laughs> a, as a player as well. You know, I heard you at the end there um, say one thing about the, the, the top four, uh, Pro 14, sorry, that, that it, some games don't have the edge. And, and for me, that's the beauty of the of that relegation is that every game is an edge. You know, I'll think about the years, you know, when, when Wasps were down there that year, um, gee, was, they were fighting for everything, um, you know, because it was really, really close. And I know London Irish are, are a bit adrift, but, um, you know, when teams are close together, every game has got an absolute um, edge to it. And it's something Super Rugby, you know, you watch Super Rugby and I watch a lot of it. And, you know, even halfway through the season, you know, uh, teams are cut adrift. Um, you know, you look at the, the days of the Cheaters and the Kings, you know, it was... There was no edge to the games, and and, and result, results were were kind of a foregone conclusion. Um, look, I do understand, you know, all the points Brian were make was were make were, was making. Sorry, and um, but but from a, probably a, a player's point of view and a, and a coach's point of view, every game has a bit of an edge. And I guess from a spectator's point of view, more importantly, that you know they want to be seeing teams, you know, rolling out and putting absolutely everything in, uh, you know, and having that edge to the games. Nick, selling to coaching. Yeah, uh, yeah. Obviously, I'd, you know, um, you'd love to be winning games. Um, you know, that, that that's what you're in the in the results based business. Um, no, but I am. I'm very much settled in. Had a, had a great ten days out in New Zealand, um, seeing a couple of uh, different environments, uh, which is which was fantastic. Um, just to see how the games evolved out there in New Zealand. Um, so that so that was brilliant. Um, but uh, no, look. Um, you know, just 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 working working hard and and trying to get the best out of players. Um, you know, it's been a very frustrating season for us. Um, and uh, you know, we're not a million miles away. We, you know, the game, as you probably guys definitely know, that it's very very small margins in, in some of these games. And the game in the weekend was was similar to that. You know, Saracens were at their pragmatic best. Um, you know, we had opportunities. Um, we didn't take them and left let a couple of soft tries in and. Um, you know, the game can be won and decided um, on those small margins. Um, and um, it's been a big learning learning process for me coming from a player um, where you're in control to, to actually not <laughs> having a lot of control on game day, which I find very, very, very hard, you know. And, um, you know, get all the preparation done during for the week and you've got to stand there and watch the boys do it. Um, 
So I get a little, a lot nervous, probably more nervous than I did when I was a player. But um, no, still enjoying it, mate. Um, we've got a big finish to the season to get to get some confidence back and um, you know really build in for for what should be a big year next year. Nick, great as always. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nick. No problem, guys. Time now to speak to the former Munster, Connaught and Leinster centre, James Downey. Hello, James. Hi, Brian. How are you? Okay. Um, Leaving aside the Pro 14, I thought it'd be more interesting actually to look, now we've got your expert opinion here for an Irish perspective, uh, the prospects of Munster and Leinster in the forthcoming Champions Cup games. I wouldn't say tricky draws, but not straightforward. Do you think either side has a possibility of actually losing a fixture at home? Um, I think the most glaring one you kind of have to look at would be the, would be the Munster game. Um, mm-hmm. Considering how well Tulane have played recently, you know, with, yes. with a 49-0 uh, win um, against Claremont, it's quite convincing. I think you have to look at it overall. You look at the Irish players who are coming back, you'd expect them to be on a high, but they have yet to play. This is going to be one of the kind of scenarios where normally with an Irish set up you'd play the week before Europe just to get used to the calls again so it's mm-hmm. it can be a case of how quickly they get embedded back into the squad into the systems and into the different calls that the, the province will have so um, it can be a tricky one I see that one as a, as a tricky one more so than the Leinster one I just think that Leinster is just the machine at the moment mm-hmm. um, uh, they're going to be extremely tough okay they, they had a loss at the weekend but um, for me it would certainly be Munster that I'd be more concerned about Um I just think that um, Toulon have just picked it up uh, a, a couple of steps, you know, a couple of notches, and I just don't see how if it wants to have that quality of player that they used to have. Uh, and James Keith Earls looks, you know, he's he, out of the match as well. Just uh, how what a blow that will be. He's had a f- fabulous uh, Six Nations. Yeah, phenomenal Six Nations from Keith, and these are the types of players that you want coming back on a high from winning a Grand Slam and. Look, he's going to be a big player who is going to be extremely well missed, especially against the Toulon side with like Chris Ashton playing there. And you kind of wonder, Earldy, who's played against him before, to kind of keep an eye on him and maybe marshal him a little bit. And obviously, Ashton's had a great, uh, great start to his career in Toulon yeah. and is nearly breaking records over there. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a huge, a huge part. Um, again, I do just see it's going to be Munster going to have to kind of revert to the monster of old yep. and it's cup rugby again and you can never write them off and how quickly can you assimilate yourself back into the provincial setup because as you say there's sort of there's almost this the the, the risk of a grand slam hangover legacy of that, that elation and then it's sort of coming down from that and then getting back to the the day job without having played enough for most of them without having played another game yeah okay Normally, this is the way they do it. Is you, you, you'd kind of have the players in and, and play the week before just to get used to those calls. But now, only certain players got back into it. Some players had a break. A few of the players are away on holidays last week just to recharge and kind of refresh. And I guess they're kind of hoping that they bring that form, that form that they've had for their country, back into provincial setup. But it's going to be a difficult one. Uh, I really going to say it's, it's going to be a tough one for them. Um, different calls like you're, you're going to be kind of going off the cuff on how you do things you're going to expect just to like read things as, as it is out there play the games you see it and um, they just might be a little bit off and, and that could uh, cost them ultimately you know I think it's it can be quite difficult to get back into different patterns different plays especially if you have 
similar calls and similar names with different uh, different plays when you've been embedded in Irish camp for so long it's it's going to have a big impact James we all know how central contracts work but if for example either of the Munster or Leinster coaches had gone to the uh, Irish uh, rugby union and said look we really do need these players um, to play this week for this reason would they have received a sympathetic hearing or is it just I'm sorry this is the way it goes, central contracts and we dictate? Yes, I, it's going to be the latter in that, Brian. It's, okay. It's, they dictate. Joe, Joe will have a huge point and say, look, understand your precarious situation where you yeah. want these players to play and actually get the game time, but ultimately we've got to look after the players. It's He's thinking long-term, he's thinking World Cup year. We've got another tour into Australia in the summer. Mm-hmm. We've got November internationals and a World Cup sorry, you're not going to get them for a Pro 14 game. Um, you're going to have them for European. Probably, you'll probably see them play the European game and then probably have another rest again. Um, they'll be well marshaled and that's the way the system's worked. Um, and as I say, Joe has that final stamp and uh, he dictates who plays and who plays where and for how long. And It is frustrating, James, isn't it? Because I, there's lots of you know, people in England sort of look at the merits of the Irish system, but if you're a provincial coach mm. in Ireland, um, you know, I also I often used to think of how would sort of Richard Cockrell when he's at Leicester respond to being told how many <laughs> players he could he could pick or when he could pick. It is a, it is a challenge um, to sort of manage uh, manage with 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 somebody else really sort of controlling the strings with your top players. I guess it's, it is. It's frustrating because you don't get that continuity of having the players playing week in week out. And look, it's it's a frustrating thing. We used to have the like Leinster Munster would normally play in the Aviva Stadium over Christmas, yeah. and before that used to be all the internationals would be back playing. It'd be a huge sellout crowd. Now the crowds are still there; they're dwindling a small bit. But you're also looking at players being rested now. The top players are not playing, and and that's starting to become frustrating now for the Irish support that they want to see the best players play the whole time. And even if you look a couple of weeks ago. Leinster had uh, two back-to-back games against the Scarlets, two of the best teams in the in the Pro 14, and two games in three weeks, and it was um, a patch side that they had against each other. And these are the sides that you'd love to see full sides being played against each other, you know. And these are the best games, and and they're not there. But I can understand how uh, from the Aviva Premiership side, where every game matters, and you can see all the players who went back in straight for their for their um, for their club teams this weekend over there. It's, it's just one of those scenarios whereby they just, it, it works for the it works for the national side. If it wasn't working, there'd be more flags. But it, it seems to be working, so no one's going to argue with Joe. Uh, James Connett, a couple of seasons back, stellar uh, season, dropped off a little this year. What are the what are the prospects? What's in the pipeline for them? Oh, that's a strange one. I think when you saw how well they went two years ago when they won the won the Pro Fourteen or Pro Twelve as it was at the time, it's. He expected them to kick on a little bit more, but again, they seem to have kind of faltered a bit. I think losing Pat Lamb was, was crucial into into what's gone on. Um, Connacht are quite an entity to themselves as well, and that they can sign a lot more foreign players. They have a lot more leeway with the IRFU in terms of uh, who they can bring in, and um, you, you've seen that how they've bolted the squad for next year, where it's called Goodwin in, and um, uh, the Hodges as well in from uh, the Rebels, I believe. Um, but they've signed a couple of decent players there, but again, Australians coming up to the west coast of Ireland, how that's going to work, I don't know. Um, it'll be a difficult one, but they've certainly slipped off, and I think a huge part of that is actually down to Pat Lamb going. Um, I think Keane's trying to 
establish and implement his own stamp in the squad, but uh, it's a slow burner. And when you're changing coach so much recently, it's a different style of the play, so it's, it's quite frustrating for the province. And Jim's any sign of of any uh, signs of hope? I guess at Ulster, it's been a difficult season for them. It seems like a bit of a mess off the field, coaching changes and things. You know, it's it's so important for Irish rugby to have uh, the four provinces all firing full cylinders. Are you getting any sense that 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 things might be improving uh, in the north? At the moment, no, I'm not. Um, I think you kind of see at the weekend losing to Cardiff. John O'Gibbs came out after and said. Nothing went well. We can take no positives from that game. Um, it's just one of these kind of, you nearly want this year to be written off, just hang on in. They've been extremely unlucky with a lot of scenarios and, and injuries and that sort of thing. And obviously the core case up there as well. And there's, look, there's just a, a, an awful lot going wrong on the field too. And when, you're, when you have the coaches going, when Les Kiss is gone and the instability, how you, how you sign players is going to be the problem for them. I mean, you don't have a coach. No one knows who the head coach is going to be next year. So when you're trying to attract some quality players, you lose Ruin PNR, who's been pivotal to Ulster over the past couple of years. and um, You don't really replace him at all. Um, it's extremely frustrating, I'm sure, for the fans. But Ulster are going to be, uh, they're shadowed themselves, as you can see. But I think it's going to be uh, a long year. And even next year, it could be, it could be a slow year. James, thank you very much. Uh, I'm not necessarily looking forward to what might be a repeat of Irish hegemony, but <laughs> if, if it comes, it won't be a matter of luck. It'll be a matter you know, of simply the best teams winning. Thank you very much. Thanks, James. Cheers. Time now to speak to top rugby referee Nigel Owens. No time off from the Six Nations, back into refereeing the Dragons and the Cheetahs. Nigel, the Six Nations as a whole, from your point of view... An official's point of view, there are one or two controversies, as there always are. How do you think in the round that the officials did? Yeah, I think, to, to be honest, Brian, um, very good, I think, overall. You know, there was nobody there. There was one or two decisions um, that became a t- talking point. But when you speak of all the decisions that had to be made uh, in a lot of games in those um, five rounds of Six Nations, you know, there was very, very little talk controversy about about the officiating, which which is what you want as a referee. You know, you want people talking about the quality of the games, how good the tournament is, uh, and people talking about the players in the games and not speaking about the referees. And yeah, there was the odd decision that became a talking point, but but overall, no, I think, you know, as a group of, of referees, um, you know, I think we, we did our job and just, just refereed what needed to be to be refereed and then let everybody talk about the games and, and the players. And I, I think it was, you know, a, a pretty good Six Nations overall, I, I think. You know, it was pretty competitive and uh, it was quite an enjoyable um, Six Nations. So, yeah, I would say, you know, as, as referees, yeah, there are things we, we can improve on and we continually get together. We were in camp during the Six Nations. We'll be in camp again now out in, um, in Sydney, Australia in May for three or four days ready for the Dune series and then leading on to the Rugby Championship where, you know, we'll be seeing like what... What can we do better as as a group of officials? What we did well? Any trends or concerns that you know we need to go back to the coaches and teams and say, look, you know, this is creeping into the game. This is the way we're going to referee it now to prevent this becoming an issue in the game. So it's just a continuous, a uh, lot of hard work, really. So yeah, I would say overall, yeah, I, I would say they were pretty, pretty good job done by all the officials. I, I would say. Can we discuss what people are calling a loophole try? It's not really. I mean, it's just the way the laws are framed. And I just wondered um, if there's any significant, why this is. If you put your foot in touch 
outside the the Ingall area, um, and you touch down, it's not going to be a try, but not the same if it's outside the Ingall area uh, where where it counts. Is there any reason for this seeming anomaly? Yeah, well, no, it's, it's always been there. I know, um, I just, very, I just very wondered rarely, why. Yeah, it's very rarely. What, what it's saying, you see, is because if you are carrying the ball and you, you put, you know, the ball is in the air and the ball touches you where you're carrying the ball and, and you're out uh, with your foot in touch or touching goal, then, then the ball is, is out. But what the way the law is written is, what the law is taking into account is because the ball is already on the floor, when you actually touch that ball with downward pressure to score a try, what it's basically saying is that's what you are doing first of all. You are actually touching that to ground it for a try before it then takes into account of where your feet are. So as long as you're not carrying the ball, that would deem to be a, a try then or, or a touchdown. So that's that's why that, that law is there. Your actions are to touch the ball down to score the try and not to touch the ball to make it into touch. Quite similar, really, to the sacking of, of the mall, for example. So when you come down to the lineup with the ball, if you have the ball carrier and two or three of his teammates bound onto him and then you grab that player, technically in law, you are now forming a mall because a mall is a ball carrier, two or three of his own teammates, plus one of the defender bound around the ball is a mall. So when you're actually grabbing that player to sack him down after he comes to ground in the line-out, you're technically forming a mall. But the reason why we don't penalise that as long as you take it to the ground immediately is your actions are not to form a mall. Your actions are to actually grab that player to tackle him. And as long as you do that immediately, we don't then apply the letter of the law, which says once you bind on, you form a mall because your actions are not to form a mall. Your actions are to make a tackle. So quite similar with a baller. Your actions are to ground that ball to score a try before we take into account then technically your foot is in, in touch. So that's where those sort of laws come into play really and how it's refereed. Nigel, one, one thing I, I, I wanted to ask you about, just there's been a... Um... I don't know if you're aware the the injury sort of review uh, released this morning by the RFU and they're looking at different areas of of where injuries have happened. And one thing, interestingly, they're talking about um, looking at the change of the laws, you know, the tackle and the breakdown and whether that's had any impact on, you know, more concussions or or or, or not. Just I'm just interested from you know maybe your your view anecdotally in terms of seeing up up close how the breakdown has changed this season. Whether you think there might be Something to be to be looked at there. Um, I, I'm not I'm not aware of you know I, I I don't know what the what the facts and figures and stuff are around injuries and stuff. So so I I don't know when I haven't read and I haven't heard anything if there's more injuries, less injuries or whatever. So I you know I I don't know. But the, as there's no, there's nothing that jumps out at me, um, Gavin. You know, there's nothing when I'm reffing the game. that nothing jumps out at me as thinking there's a huge change in the breakdown area this year. Um, not from when I'm reffing the game, you know, it's still it's still physical, it's still hard and there's some 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 big hits in there. And and I think as referees and within and the laws of the game really is what we need to assure is that when there are 
clear outs and clean outs in that contact area that you know they were in the, the framework of what the laws are and the laws are there to sort of to, to try and protect the players if from that point of view and allowing a contest and the continuity of the game as well so as I think you know as, as long as we sort of make sure that there are no sort of, you know, shoulder to head clear outs and players running in and charging, you know, that we that we still make sure that there is a genuine attempt to ruck and you ruck, you know, you sort of you go in low and you sort of your arms are there ready to grasp somebody and, and, and ruck them off the ball. So all I think we can do is 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 make sure that we stay within those limits of the laws. And and the laws are there for a reason. They're there to prevent people charging in and causing injuries, you know, and that's um, and and sort of, you know, I, I suppose it'll be down to the powers to be then to, to, to let us know, you know, if things are working or things need to be looked at if whatever sort of the fact of figures have come out to it. But I'm certainly not aware of any sort of huge difference at the moment in, in refing the game as far as that goes, you know. Nigel, that's great as always. Thank you very much. Contributions gratefully received. Thanks, mate. Pleasure both. All the best. Ta-da. Time now to switch to the women's game and I'm pleased to say that we can very shortly speak to Rob Kane, the Saracens women's coach. Over the weekend, there were a number of uh, fixtures, including a win for Quinns away, which is, um, has put them at the top of the table, but Saracens are only a couple of points behind and there are still games to go. Rob... It should be the end of the season, but there's been snow, so there's a lot of stuff still to come. You're only a couple of points behind. Extra game at Bristol. Are you going to finish top? (laughs) Hi, Brian. Yeah, we hope so. Obviously, you know, a little bit disappointed with the result of the weekend. Um, Lots of positives to come from it. It would have been nice to to have wrapped up finishing top of the league last weekend, but we get another bite of the apple, so to speak. Um, with a very tough challenge with Crystal away. How uh, important was the, uh, I think, uh, was it Poppy Cleal that was sin-binned? Yeah, Poppy, uh, Poppy got sin-binned, yeah, that's right. How, how much do you think that affected the result? Without blaming her, obviously, for fourth defeat. <laughs> yeah, I think any sin-bin has an effect on any game, um, especially this season where, you know, the, the tempo of the game has, has really raised and the physicality has. So having one less person out there does affect things. Um, you know, I thought I thought the players managed it as best they could, but just, you know, you, it's inevitable you're going to leak, uh, you know, one or two scores just because of the tempo of the game now. Um, when it comes to the end of the season, is it the same as um, in the Premiership where you have playoffs, or is it just a straight I win? Yeah, uh, playoffs. So obviously, number one plays four, number two plays three, mm-hmm. and you have a home and away leg, and then you go through to the final. Uh, Rob, it's shaken down into top four of Quinns, Saracens, Wasps, Gloucester, Hartbury. Of those, apart from yourselves, obviously, who do you think has the best chance of winning winning the title? Um, I think the league has shown all, all year, Brian, that the teams are so competitive, and I think you know the weekend's result. 29-32, and, um, you know, we've lost to Wasps 5-0 during the season. Mm-hmm. Gloucester have beaten Quinns. I think all the top four teams have beaten each other. So the exciting thing for us is that, um, you know, the games are, are so competitive that um, for the spectator, it bodes well going into the playoffs. Yeah. 
Robert, Robert's Gavin here. Um, I was just just going to ask you on a general point about um, uh, sort of one of the most pleasing things this season. They are a few sort of increasing commitment and uh, resourcing the women's game. Can you just give us a, a, an insight into uh, how you, you've noticed the game uh, sort of improve in terms of its coverage, in terms of crowds? Just get a sense that it's a, it's becoming a very buoyant tournament. Oh, most definitely. Uh, you know, the investment from the RFU has been, has, has, been, has been huge, you know, financially and obviously uh, away from that, the support they've given the clubs. But, you know, there's been a, a, a huge responsibility that the clubs had to really run with it and, and they've put a lot of effort into it. And the senior clubs around the women's clubs have really bought into it and, and that's really allowed some fantastic rugby to be played because of the financial investment and the resources and I think we're getting a really good product. I think the rugby's been fantastic. I mean, yeah. teams are scoring tries from their own try line. I think most teams are getting bonus points. The games are within five, six, seven points of each other, a lot of them. And the crowds have been fantastic. And, and from our point of view, I mean, we're just so lucky that the Saracen Supporters Association have just bought into what we're doing at the club. And, and they're always there cheering the girls on. And, and we have a fantastic time with them. Who was it that scored that wonderful stop-start, went round two fixed defenders for Quinn's try? Um, it was Emma Urin. That's Emma right. Urin, she's uh, yes. the under-20s captain. Yeah. Yep. She, the, well, that was a, an absolutely phenomenal try. Uh, listen, good luck for the rest of the season. I suppose um, we'll probably see the full benefits in the second and third years of this investment. I think so, Brian. I mean, one thing that has been a huge uh, exciting thing about about the investment is that it's really allowed a new generation of players to come through and showcase their talents yes but uh, but as well I think a lot of people have, have lost this that there's been that middle that middle bracket of player maybe 21 to 25 and mm. the support that they've received when they've maybe not necessarily been earmarked during the system as a early developer has really showed how far they've come as well so I think it's been beneficial all round, and, and I'm really excited to see just where women's rugby can go. Yeah. Best of luck, Rob. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Ryan. Very nearly the end of uh, Brian Moore's full contact this week, Gav. Let's look forward to what should be a stellar uh, set of quarterfinals in Europe. Scarlet's La Rochelle, given the way that those two sides can play, yeah. provided the weather isn't untoward, that should be a cracking match. And actually, with games like that, they're very difficult to predict. So, La Rochelle, Victor Vito, power, too much for Scarlet's or Scarlet's home advantage? I, I think this has potential to be the tie of the round. Yep. Um, we've seen both sides play brilliant rugby this year. My one concern for La Rochelle is their form on the road. Um, they've been uh, imperious at home, but we've seen them lose matches on the road, even against sides that aren't up, you know, haven't have their yes. quality. Um, and I think Scarlets, uh, the way they they can play a game which isn't doesn't rely on the par game, and they will look to expose uh, La Rochelle, uh, uh, particularly out wide. I think, and I, I actually think Scarlets can win this game, um, and I just hope it sort of lives up to the expectations we have because it's, it's a cracking weekend of fixtures, and it would be brilliant to see a Welsh side get through to the to the semi-finals. It would. Uh, Munster Toulon, Toulon firing at the moment. Chris Ashton 
doing what he's always done, to yeah. be fair to him. He's yeah. always scored tries wherever he's been. Yeah. And no matter what you say about his defence, he's scored more points than he's ever, ever given away. Uh, I think he's been unlucky in terms of his England career. Um, they had a big win over Claremont, but Munster, I think the home advantage yeah. is a big thing. If any side is going to win away, it will be Toulon, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the you know for both the Leinster and the Munster games, we've, we've touched on this earlier, it'll just be can those players who've been involved with the yeah. Grand Slam lift themselves, you know, You've been there. <laughs> it's difficult, I'm sure, to say you, when you've reached the absolute pinnacle in a season to go, right, you've got to pick yourself up again, me- mentally and physically. And you know what? It's like this. You can think you're in the mood. It's only after a game or maybe a couple of weeks after a game that you realise, actually, I just wasn't there. Yeah. And you don't do it on purpose. Yeah. And you may get it right. But it's a really strange thing. You, there's no secret to it, yeah. Um, so you, and and yeah. it depend. It really does depend on on how they come back because both with that and let's just have a little look at the Leinster, Sarries game. Yeah, you've got the same for both sides. Um, Sarries, I thought they were comfortable winners against Quinns, but they're no not at the level they were in the previous two years, and yet. Yeah. With the personnel they've got, who yeah. knows? It's a re- and the f- it's a rerun of Twickenham. Effectively, yes. you know, yeah. you've got the same key key um, operators yeah. um, and uh, and Saracens. You can imagine being in the Saracen change room. They are a change room from an in- from the international perspective. They're hurting. Yes, and everybody has said they were flat. They're you know they're this, they're that. This is a brilliant opportunity for the likes of Atoje and Co to come back and Farrell and say. Listen, we are we are at the top of the game, both domestically and internationally. And I mean, you couldn't ask for anything more. Easter Sunday uh, in, in Dublin, uh, a, a, a real treat for the supporters. And again, I just hope that it isn't doesn't become too tight. There's too much on the line. But the one the one England team, the one England club team that can win away in those environments has to be Saracens, and, yes. and they have the pedigree to do it. It's just whether they can reach those peaks, as you said of the previous two seasons. Now, Claremont uh, taking on Racing, having been smacked 43 <laughs> points down at Toulon. Now, I, to be honest, I don't know how weak their team was or whether it was weakened. I presume there must have been some changes for that. But Racing, I think you're a different prospect at home at their disco ground. Um, and Claremont, whatever you say about them, have a good European pedigree and at home again. I know. Probably, I think you'll have too much for Racing. I agree. I agree. You, every time I go to Claremont, you always think, how do they ever lose a game here? And they usually don't. So I, I don't think they'll lose this one. And that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact. Thank you to my co-host, Gavin Mayers, and as always, my producer, Abby Patterson. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast because after all, it's completely free. And that way you will never miss an episode. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts as it will help more people find us. We'll be back next week. For now, goodbye. Brian Moore's Full Contact is just one part of the Telegraph Sport podcast family, as you can also subscribe and download Total Football. Join Tom Gibbs and a host of Telegraph Football reporters as they aim to take you behind the football stories of the weekend. Your Monday morning commutes will be instantly better for it. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.